This is Bill Bruford, and you're listening to Jazz Is Not What You Think. Thanks for uh, for joining, and it's great to have you on the show. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. I've been a fan. It's interesting that I've enjoyed your entire career thus far, and uh, but I was introduced to you, which I believe most people were, uh, through Yes. But I was came more fascinated with you with Earthworks. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, yep. Yeah, that's a, a common a common thing I hear. Mm-hmm. And so so you know the the thing that I you know, I remember like it was yesterday. Uh, again, not too, uh, not too far before that photo was taken. That um, I was in my my stepfather's car, and mm-hmm. I had the alternative radio uh, station on because he had gone into a store, and I stayed in the car. It was one of those cars where you can listen to the to the a car radio when the car wasn't on. Mm. Um, and, and so this song came on, and I'd never heard anything like it before. Uh, you know, fast forward, it was, uh, I've seen all good people. Mm-hmm. And, and what struck me was, uh, the, the instrumentation, even though the harmonies were fantastic. Um, mm. I heard a bunch of instruments that in, in another ensemble may not have worked together, but it worked so well. And one of the things that was very striking was the drumming because you didn't sound like a typical drummer and there was something no, I, happening. I, I was, believe me, I was trying <laughs> I was trying to be like every other guy, but it just wouldn't quite come out the same. Yeah, and, and it, but it, but it, it did something to the music that I think it created that kind of indelible path. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was just um, looking, looking back a little, listening back a little this morning to some stuff from 1969, which was um, pretty pretty frantic you know and what of course was acceptable in those days is more or less unacceptable now mm-hmm. you know 50 years later we have a whole bunch of different criteria upon which to form some idea of quote unquote good drumming you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and bear in mind you know we didn't even use the word groove until about 1970 mid 70s you know and, and it slowly became associated with with good good drumming mm-hmm. you know Whereas in my day, we were just sort of thought we were sort of a bit like the conductor in the band. If it needed to go a bit faster here, it would do. And if it went a bit slower there, that was good because it needed to go a bit slower there, etc. Mm-hmm. So, so things have changed so much. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and um, we'll get back to some of the earlier days, but I, w- I wanted to bring uh, our listeners up to present. Um, you know, in the in the communications you and I had back and forth, uh, I had I had understood, but you made it succinct that you hung up your sticks in two thousand nine, stop cold turkey. Uh, but you've been very busy since then. Uh, yeah, really. I mean, uh, busier <laughs> busier than being a musician. Right. Uh, no, but uh, somewhat out of sight because um, I I took I just kind of stepped back out of practice. As a, as a drummer and, and started to look at it from an outsider's point of view. In fact, partly trying to figure out what it was that made me stop. Mm-hmm. To do that, um, I needed some evidence and some research and stuff. And so I, I went to a university, got a, um, some doctoral work done and earned a PhD. Wow. Um, and have uh, subsequently written a book on the topic really of creativity, but specifically in relationship to expert drummers. 
Mm -hmm. uh, I distinguish that group from famous. They're not all famous, but they're all expert. Um, and distinguish it again from perhaps beginners. Yeah, and, and I, if I can interrupt, I was going to say that um, the book is called Uncharted, Creativity and the Expert Drummer. It's on it's University of Michigan Press. Um, one of the things that struck me about the book is the the drummers that you picked, you know, from famous uh -huh. bands that themselves they may not be that famous. You know, a drummer from Steely Dan, a drummer from James Taylor, Van Morrison, Santana, David mm. Bowie, uh, Herbie Hancock, Frank Zappa. But and, yeah, and while those names, right? Yeah, and I and I think <laughs> that the fascinating things is that sometimes the drummers in those bands that were clearly selected by just beautiful, wonderful artists, they mm. were less well known, but no less contributory than the other members of the band. That's how it would be seen now. I think I think in the old days, you know, we just kind of assumed that it that it was all to do with the front guy. But the front guy, funnily enough, he needs these other guys. And creativity now is seen as much more distributed throughout the group of people. You know, so James Taylor isn't going to be that that good without, I don't know who was playing with him, State, Steve Gadd or whatever it was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it, conversely, you know, the Gads need the Taylors. It's interactive. It's interactional. And it's a relationship between people. Yeah. And, and that's how we see it more these days rather than what they used to call the old um, kind of, oh, you know, uh, sort of heroic, uh, heroic syndrome where, where there was just the lone creator in the garret, you know, right. the lone musician, the lone genius paradigm. Yeah. So, so of all the drummers that you, you, uh, interviewed in your book, um, were there any drummers that stood out that were, that surprised you with their approach and their philosophy and what they had to say? Um, not particularly. I mean, a lot of academic work is confirming what seems to be the obvious um, in a way. Uh, they, they, not all of them, um, uh, not all of them focused heavily on creativity. When I grew up, I thought my only mission was to be creative. I thought that's, that's what you were paying me to do. Um, <laughs> I thought that as a, as a kid. So, um, so, so I was going to say, how, so has that changed at all? Uh, not for me personally, but other people understand perfectly well that in some music situations, creativity is not needed. It's not required in some areas of traditional music and some areas of re recording advertising or, or, or any number of areas of popular music performance. Creativity is not necessarily required. And the smart guy these days learns how to slide up and down a kind of continuum of being creative in the morning and then being unbelievably uncreative in the afternoon and insanely creative in the evening <laughs> and knowing how to go about that job. So I brought a little bit of analysis to that sort of thing. Oh, that's great. Well, now when you were working on your thesis, um, what was, what was, what was the thesis? Is, was it part of this book or were you exploring um, something well, else? The, the book is closely related, but it, but it's, uh, and I don't want to bore your listeners to death with this, but uh, it's closely related, but a, a thesis is written in normal language. Uh, I beg your pardon. A book is written in much more normal language. Right, right. A thesis is written in uh, unbelievably dry language. A little bit academic. Very, a little bit. It's completely <laughs> academic. It requires no adjectives, no adverbs, no jokes, for God's sake. And how can you how can you have a book from a musician without any jokes in it? 
Especially um, drummer jokes, right? Uh, drama jokes, of course. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a book is a book is much more normal. I wrote a, I wrote a first book, really, uh, an, a first book some time ago, a few years back. Uh, and that was just a very, very informal kind of you and I sitting down the pub uh, shooting the breeze. Uh, then a PhD is insanely formal in this different kind of voice altogether. And a book is, an academic book is somewhere in the middle. So really, you're, you're Dr. William Bruford. You can call me that if you like. It's all right. <laughs> I won't hang up or anything. I just don't do, I don't do, you know, ingrowing toenails. Oh, okay. You know what? I, I am a doctor and I don't do those. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, you know, you know, maybe we should, you know, talk about early life and, and, and back up to current, you know, one of the things like oh. I mentioned is that I, I, I was introduced to you through yes, but through you, I, I got turned on to King Crimson and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it's sort of, you know, when I think of King Crimson, uh, even yes, to some degree, um, it's sort of like miles. And, and when I say that is people, when people tell me they love miles Davis, I always say, well, which period? Yeah, indeed. These bands now have been around, and these these blocks of music and, and the bands have been around so long now that, you know, they can be 30, 40, 50 albums in or four or five decades. And absolutely, the, the artist changes, changes all the time, reserves the right to change. Again, that's what you're paying him to do, to change. Miles had at least three distinct periods, I would have thought. Yeah. Um, King Crimson seemed to change almost album to album. And there was one, you know, fairly hairy kind of moment in about 1980 when we reconfigured ourselves as a band called Discipline for about a week. Yeah. And then King Crimson again. And the band went out on the road without playing a single note of any of the music with which it had become famous. Wow. Now, that can get really tricky. Yeah. <laughs> Number one, even even the most forgiving of audiences is not going to be entirely happy with that because, you know, nobody wants it to be like these days where you've got to play, you know, in order, in strict order, you know, the yeah. tunes that the customer wants to hear. Right. But back in those days, I mean, perhaps we erred too far the other way where we just laid on them uh, our latest thing. And that could be uh, very risky. Yeah, well, well, you know, I I was introduced from Twenty First Century Schizoid Man, and then I I fell in love with Larks, and mm. and I really got turned back on, and and revisited and went back and listened to the albums from uh, from Discipline, and especially um, with Adrian Blue with things like Elephant Talk. Yeah, I love that. That was, I think, for me personally, my favorite period of the band that I had anything to do with it was the eighty to eighty four band. Yeah. Yeah, mine too. Uh, when it was lovely, it was me, Adrian, Robert, and uh, Tony Lavin. And uh, it was a, a very airy little configuration, just just four people now. And, and I understand the band now has eight or nine people in it. So, so it's pretty big right now. Well, would you say that that period, and I think maybe Elephant Talk might symbolize that, it seemed like the band was having more fun. I was certainly having a lot of fun. I think, well, I thought we were. Yeah, I, I, it, it, to, to me, it was a tremendous band on stage. So I was having fun. I mean, I'm not sure whether that was necessarily a smile on my face all the time, but but certainly I was I was engaged. I was, every every little corner of my musical being was engaged in that band. And you know, a, a set of music for an hour and fifteen or an hour and a half, you know, would would flash past in minutes because I was so intrigued and involved with it. 
Wow. It was a tremendous group. Loved it. So, so what was, I, I guess, since we're on the topic of fun, what was the most fun Yes album? Oh, most fun Yes album. Well, I, I you know, I, I've not got a PhD in fun. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's part of my, my problem. I do take things fairly seriously. And, uh-huh. and often for me, the pleasure, let's put it like that, okay. is, in the, pleasure. Is, is often in the looking back. You know, so I get tremendous pleasure from playing close to the edge now and thinking, listening to that kid uh, who seemed to wear these, you know, awful pants <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and with funny looking hair. And I, um, I listen to that with great pleasure and think how fantastic that, that it was. However, I've got to say, you know, the late nights and the, and the fairly pushy, shovey kind of making of the thing uh, was pretty hard work. You know, I'm not complaining at all. It's just since you asked, it's it's hard yeah. work doing some of these things. So, so how about Genesis? You know, uh, you know, again through you, I, you know, and and certainly uh, Peter and 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 Phil, um, mm. I was turned on to Genesis, and and there was there was a period where you know you were a, a, you know very integral in the band, but it wasn't for a very long time. Um, no, what, no, that's what, true. What, uh, what well, was that? The context is important just to lay down a, a, a whisker of background because you and I would approach these things slightly differently. Sure. Um, I mean, I had, where was I? Uh, I'd been sort of, King Crimson had collapsed in about 1974. 1975, I was kind of edging towards forming my own band and getting a ton of studio experience, mm-hmm. uh, finding out how other people ran their bands, what did they do, you know, what choices did they make, what was the record company, what's it like, you know, uh, directing your own album, for example, all these things were new to me. Uh, so I did a lot of that in 75. And then 76, I just kind of fell into Genesis. We mm-hmm. were, uh, I was hanging out with Phil playing percussion to, to a gig of his at the London School of Economics. I remember one night and uh, he was in Brand X. I was therefore in Brand X playing with him. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that he had this, this problem with Peter, that uh, Peter wanted to leave the band that he, Phil, had been auditioning uh, singers, uh, that as far as he was concerned, they were all crap, you know, and that he, Phil, thought he could do better than those guys. And so, you know, obviously me or he or both of us at the same time drew the dots between, you know, connected up the dots and said, well, why don't you sing, Phil, and uh, I'll play the drums, and then when you're comfortable, you know, you can get another drummer in kind of thing. You see what I mean? Because he knew my stuff and he liked my drumming and trusted it. The, the fear for him, he said, was that standing up there at the front as a singer is that the band would somehow collapse behind him. <laughs> and that would be a drummer's nightmare because drummers are used to making sure things don't collapse. Right. That's, that comes up in my book, too. You know, drummers see themselves as very powerful guys on stage. You know, I can make your band collapse really quickly if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of power. Yeah, they have a lot of power, and they see themselves as very powerful people. Um, so, so a drummer singing—the first thing he's going to worry about is, is is his band collapsing behind him. So, with me, he thought that wouldn't happen, and he was more or less okay with that. Uh, so, I said, I, "I'll sign on for a bit," and we did um, nine months or a year tour on just one album. Really, it was a trick of the tail, I think. Yeah, wonderful album, and and that that I remember like it was yesterday. I was. Still in the vinyl days, I went to the record store, got a copy of it, knew that Gabriel wasn't on the album, and then I put it on and I said, this is kind of freaky. It sounds almost like it it works almost as good, if not better, than before. 
Yeah, isn't that the strangest thing? I think in those days we were beginning to figure out that the bands weren't all necessarily about the lead singer. Yeah. And the lead singer could actually be exchanged. And, of course, I think Pink Floyd learned that a fairly hard way. Sure, sure. The Roger said more or less, well, you know, I'm going, implying that if I go, the band will collapse. Strangely enough, same with Peter, strangely enough, the band doesn't collapse and it goes yeah. on to even greater strength, yeah. which I think surprised a lot of people. Yeah, I, in fact, I, I, I still rank... Uh, Trick of the Tale is is my favorite Genesis album, and and I wouldn't have thought that, mm-hmm. um, but I just I just constantly go back to that. Um, so yeah. ar- around that time, you you went out on your own, and you I think if I remember your first album was under your name Bill Bruford, but after that they became Bruford, and did. and there were, you know your your bandmates were you couldn't get better. I mean Jeff Berlin, Alan Holsworth just artists that are truly experts at what they do. Yes, uh, yes, I think so. It was a a sort of golden dream team from my point of view, really. Um, I was very fortunate to have them for three or four years. Um, Alan, sadly, has passed away, as you may or may not know. Um, Oh, yes. But it was a real and astonishing innovator on the guitar. And in fact, it wasn't on my first, I mean, he was on my first album and played really great, but it was just about six months later with UK mm-hmm. that he became, he really grabbed the ears of the American audience, the North American crowd, with his solo on In the Dead of Night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, suddenly the phone was ringing off the hook for him, and it was Eddie Van Halen, and it was Aldi Miola and stuff, all saying, who the heck is this guy? You know, how can he <laughs> play like that? And it yeah. was really... It was really something. And uh, then we went back and did another album of Michael, One of a Kind. Sure. He developed his stuff even further there. So it was fun watching him and uh, and a huge pleasure to play with him because, of course, the great pleasure for a drummer is I'm sitting in the middle of this every night. You know, I don't even yeah. have to pay, which is which is lovely. And, and you know, the, the uh, speaking of guitarists, I, I remember an album that you did uh, with uh, Jeff Berlin and Kazumi Watanabe. Actually, mm. one or one or two albums, uh, Spice of Life or Spice of Life Two. I think they're both. There's both Spice of Lives. Well, you have an encyclopedic knowledge there. Well, they it that's it, <laughs> my job. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I remember um, actually even seeing a video. Um, it was on a, a a label that uh, is no longer around, which was one of my favorite labels, uh, Gramavision Records. Oh yeah, and, and a wonderful label, and uh, mm. you. I, you People got to see you in a sort of a jazz rock, but I want to say unplugged in a way, even though it was electric, because now there's three members where you could really hear the members individually in a way that I hadn't seen before or heard before, which it was really fascinating. And and Kazumi, we don't hear much of Kazumi here in the United States. No, it's Uh, funny that it's funny that, you know, he's he's a guitar hero. He's their guitar hero in Japan. Absolutely. And the guitar sort of, he's their Eric Clapton and everything in between. And uh, like so many Japanese folk, he can play every style known to mankind um, perfectly. Yeah. Um, And it's extraordinary watching him sort of imitate Alan Holdsworth for you. Yeah. While while his body takes on the same body movements as Alan. He, (laughs) He even starts to look like, you know what I mean? Or Steve Howe or Eric Clapton or whoever he is, he's... He's doing at that particular time. It's an extraordinary embodiment of the very person he's he's emulating. 
Well, it, I, I, it may be because he's so good at that that he has never quite found the Kazumi in him. Yeah, he, yeah. yeah you it's know. funny that you mention that. You know, I, I, I had a, a jazz label uh, back in the 90s in the Verve group. And my partner was a guitarist who, you know, uh, Lee Rittenauer. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Kazumi used to do the, an unbelievable Lee Rittenauer <laughs> to the point where I, I think there was even one album when he was doing a more Lee Rittenauer style where he actually was using Lee's hair. <laughs> and, funny? and it's funny that you say that because he did become the guitarist that he could somewhat easily emulate. Yes, indeed, indeed. And like we said, right, right at the beginning of this interview, you know, some, some time back, we, right at the beginning, you asked something. I said I was trying hard to be like everybody else, but having a hell of a time being somebody, you know, being yeah. like everybody else. It just wouldn't come out that way. That's the opposite psychology to Kazumi. Yeah. Kazumi yeah. can just absorb and be everybody else. I had no trouble being an individual at all because I was absolutely hopeless at being anybody else. <laughs> so... Again, the, the, I think the jazzier side of Bruford, we all got through Earthworks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it was some, it was a, it, and it, I'm assuming that, that, you know, Earthworks, I think I, I was introduced in the early 80s. And, and I think it's, it continued all the way up till when you, as you said, uh, oh, well, laid your sticks down. Mid 90s, yeah. mid 90s, early, early 2000s. And, and what's going to become of Earthworks? Well, Earthworks is parked and permanently parked in the sense that I don't perform anymore. So uh, Earthworks is just sort of sitting and it has no, it has no future. It was uh, a, a wonderful 20 years with some of the best British guys I could find. And I had no problem finding good guys. There were some tremendous players. The, the one most known in the States probably is Tim Garland, uh, tenor saxophone player with your career often. Sure. Um, and Gwilym Simcock, who's currently out with Pat Metheny. Yeah, Gwilym's great. Have you, have, you, have you seen Pat's recent group where you live um, in your area with Gwil on piano? No, I, I, I'm aware that he was... Uh, I actually communicated with Gwil a couple of years back when I was introduced to him. I was just so blown away by uh, yeah. his playing. And uh, But I, I know that he's done things with Pat. I, I don't know, is it is it what Pat's doing right now? Uh, he moves so fast, Pat. I don't yeah. keep up. But but yes, Gwill and um, Gwill Simcock and Pat Matheny were both in a local British town, or well, in a northern British town, about two weeks ago. So yeah, must be. That's great. Well, I'm a big Pat fan. Mm. Um, so by the way, since you, I just, I thought I'd remind you that uh, on my father's side, we are from Manchester. <laughs> and, right? Yeah, okay. most most people think I'm you know an American guy, but and I am, but yeah, uh, yeah. but I, I I do have some connection to uh, to England. Okay, yeah, thought I'd bring that up. Right. All right. So now you know. I think this year you were inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, that's I mean, well, not so that, too many that, not too many jazz drummers can say that. No, that's that's very true. Perhaps I'm just a drummer. Perhaps I'm neither a rock drummer nor a jazz drummer. Yeah, I've always I've always been a bit too jazz for rock and a bit too rock for jazz. So, yeah, you know, I so, see that happen a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm some somewhere in the middle. Um, uh, no, that was, a, you know, I'm not big with kind of um, halls of fame and, and stuff. I'm not really big on fame itself as an idea. But but uh, uh, it was uh, certainly an honor to be to be there and to be out 
back there with my old friend John Anderson, who started yeah. me off in this business, really. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my earliest memories are of John Anderson of Yes, yeah. you know, sitting sitting on the, the, the bottom two or three flights of our staircase in our apartment in London, aged about, he would have been, he was quite old at about 22 or something. Mm -hmm. I must have been 18. You know, sort of hustling promoters like you wouldn't believe, begging for gigs. You know, and of course, it would always cost us more money to play the gig than we got to do it. <laughs> yeah. So we were digging a hole in the ground <laughs> big time. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so it, was it worked. It was great to be uh, up on a stage with him after, you know, half a century of that stuff. So terrific. Yeah. I'm going to name a couple of other uh, jazz artists uh, that you've played with. And mm -hmm. uh, if you can give me a couple of uh, little insight on what it was like to do those projects. Uh, an artist that not many people know, uh, but phenomenally talented, Jamaluddin Takuma. Well, funny, you mentioned Gramavision, didn't you, earlier yes, on? Yes, absolutely. And, 1984 and release. That was a Gramavision um, album, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know, I can't even remember how I came across Jamaluddin or how he got my number or anything. But it was it was a rushed job, not, yeah. not one of my not one of my favorite albums one of these but always learning you know I, i've yeah. always been a learner and if i'm in an unfamiliar situation so uh you know i'm i'm on my way back to london and i'm i've got my bags suitcase and i'm on the way to the airport but I, i'm going to stop off and do a five-hour session with jamal Adin. and some somewhere in i was in philly and somewhere uh i can't remember what the studio was and a bunch of guys and I think uh, Jonathan Rose had his own studio in Manhattan. Did you happen to record in that one? No, I don't think so. Okay. I, I can't quite remember where I was, but it was a small, small place. And, uh, you know, everybody's setting up their instruments. And nobody's talking much. And they're just playing the, the, the track down. He's done a demo. He's playing the track down through the studio speakers as I'm setting up the rental drum set, you know, which is not yet tuned and stuff. And it was recorded very fast. Um, so a, a, diff a difficult, a difficult day for me, where I would probably have said, "Well, can we have another go at that?" You know, <laughs> but, but I don't think we did have another go at it. How about David Torn? David Torn is a real soul brother. He's yeah. uh, a man I really take my my hat off to. I I love the record that we did together, "Cloud About Mercury." Yeah. Um, we did another one after that called "Door X," but it was "Cloud About Mercury." I think somehow it had the sort of crimson zeitgeist about it yeah it had uh, me and tony doing our crimson bubbling and bobbling <laughs> at the background and torn with these huge clouds of of kind of spacey stuff and very intelligently the pointed and beautifully melodic and graspable mark isham on trumpet yeah. And it was one of those, again, one of those wonderful combinations, I thought. And I thoroughly enjoyed it, a bit like the 80s Crimson. I, I had all the rhythmic space was mine. No instructions, no. Uh, and, and I was wrestling with electronic drum kits and stuff. And they were very patient, of course. You know, well, it, it, what, what did electronic drums do? You know, can they play MIDI? Yes. Well, can they play chords? Well, maybe, you know, give me an hour and I'll see if I can get a chord out of it. That kind of thing. <laughs> Um, so it was a very exciting, very creative time, I thought, uh, around there. I was learning lots um, about how to be a better drummer and how to be better better collaboratively and creatively in studios with people I didn't particularly know. 
which is a real musician's art. It's a real skill that. Yeah, I remember in the mid-'80s when Cloud About Mercury came out. It was not mm-hmm. only one of my favorite albums at the time, but, you know, for what it's worth, the critics were were just talking about it. They said this is, you know, it was on ECM, so it was. You, you knew it was a certain, it was going to have a certain high level of quality anyway, like most ECM albums, but there was something very magical about that album. Yeah, it was, you know, taking an electronic drum set into the home of high-fidelity acoustic jazz was a bit like, you know, sticking your head in the lion's jaws, you know. <laughs> Did it, you? <laughs> Manfred wandered over as, we was, as I was setting up and kind of poked at these plastic drums and looked very suspicious about the whole thing. <laughs> Sounds but like I, Manfred. So how was it like to work with Manfred? Oh, well, very scary. <laughs> uh, I mean, he spends most of the session not saying anything, but just with his heads in his hands, looking as if this is the most awful music he's ever heard in his life. <laughs> and, <laughs> and at the end of the day, he kind of says, yeah, that's, that was really OK. You know, yes, that's what's OK, you know, and that's about as good as you get. Yeah, that's a compliment from Manfred. Yeah, he's he, yeah. He, look, it, it, since he's had, you know, ECM, I think they're they're getting, I want to say, what are they? 40 something years around and, and, a and tremendous and, tremendous body of work that you know and and the sort of home of the european soul of jazz really absolutely absolutely and, and you know it's, it's sort of like you know it's one of those labels you know people don't typically buy music by labels there are some people who are gravitate if they understand a label but i think that's one of the few labels where i think people do look at a new album on ECM. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As, as I would when I was 21 or 18, you know, I would have bought something from Blue Note and trusted yep. Blue Note Records. Right. You know, if, if it came out on Blue Note, I was happy with it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and ECM had had that same thing going for it um, later on in the 70s and on up to now. Absolutely. Um, and and, and the, their catalog is, is just so rich. Yeah. Uh, from Pat yeah. to Chick... I know it's, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, so what's so now that you've retired, what's yeah. your next thing? What so is he, your next thing? <laughs> Said so he carefully. You know, re- retirement is is a funny thing, and it? it's a, it's a it's a it's a funny word. What it means in my world is I retired from public performance, because I'm not one of these guys who, uh, put it this way, I'm one of these guys who finds music quite difficult. It's not one of those. I'm not one of those guys for whom from whom music just pours out like kind of liquid. And there's plenty of them. And we've mentioned the last 10 names we've mentioned are a bit like that. People like Will Simcock and Tim Garland, probably Pat Metheny. Music seems to pour out fairly effortlessly. On the other hand, I'm one of these guys who finds it quite difficult. There's uh, a lot of choices, a lot of decisions. Uh, maybe I think it too much. That's possible too. Uh, but whatever, it's it's kind of exhausting. And I thought around... 41 years, I'd, I'd call it a day in terms of performance. So I retired from public performance, but but um, I thought the way I might continue to contribute, because I like that, I like contributing to the drum community, is by doing this little bit of research on drummers and trying to forward the idea. And there's a slight polemic to the book that, you know, on the whole, drummers are insanely creative people. They're mm-hmm. much more creative than they think they are. And they're much more creative than others think they are if their low status is to be taken seriously. 
and wherever we turn, you know, we see we see drummers all over the place now. You know, uh, whether it's Antonio Sanchez doing, you know, movie music, or or it's some ad on the TV which is a drum track only, you know, or or Whiplash or movies about drummers or or any of that stuff. Drums are everywhere, and I think, funnily enough, uh, just as well, you know, the old the old jokes about drummers and musicians are probably pretty dated now. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, you're listening to Jazz Is Not What You Think. We're here today with Bill Bruford. His latest book, not his first, Uncharted, Creativity and the Expert Drummer. Bill, it's been absolutely wonderful to have you on the show. <laughs> oh, Michael, it's a pleasure. Pleasure.